Hi, my name is Jared Barron, and I am the CEO of The Metals Company. And we are the first company to be <clears throat> moving towards commercialization and picking up these polymetallic nodules, which sit on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean floor. And they happen to contain all of the, the metals we need to build the EV battery cathodes. And we think we can collect them and turn them into battery materials at a fraction of the environmental and societal impacts compared to land-based alternatives. Jared, good to see you, sir. I haven't seen you since October. Are you well? I'm very well. Nice to see you. Yeah. Are you, are you, have you been bouncing around the world or have you been trapped like the rest of us at home? Well, I've, I've been bouncing around the world, actually. Yeah, we've been... I was fortunate during COVID to have um, <clears throat> sort of access into the US. And so it's been pretty well business as usual from our side and um, just without all the people. But I've noticed all the people are coming back now. So, Right. And, yeah. and I, I, I'm guessing this uh, access to the U.S. is tied to um, business and the essential nature of what well, they're, mm. they're, they're deeming your business essential to um, their security or otherwise. So what, what sorts of conversations are you having um, in the U.S. at the moment? Well, you know, there's this uh, all of a sudden uh, an awakening to the security of supply of materials. And, you know, we, we've been waiting for it for a long time, Matthew, uh, a long time. So, but the conversations we're having at the moment, of course, we have our research vessel that was moored out of San Diego. And last year we spent 188 days on our license area, four and a half days west of San Diego, um, carrying out science baseline studies. So that was a reason to be there. Um, I don't go on the expeditions per se because they tend to be away for six or seven weeks, but I like to be there when they go or come back. And also just meeting with a lot of investors, meeting with a lot of senators and government agencies who are now starting to wake up to the importance of battery metals. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun time. Well, it's... it's, it's not just the importance, but the ability to actually get it. So we talk about we talk about secu mineral security, um, mm. and most governments have a, a, a list of minerals which they um, feel yeah. that it, uh, they they need to secure the supply of in some way, shape, or form into their into their country. But look, I'm, I wanted to, I wanted to catch up with you, okay? Because um, we we've talked uh, a few times over the last couple of years about how you move a project like this forward. It's kind of highly emotive. Highly contentious, but it also potentially solves a very big problem coming down the line because the, the demand numbers suggest we're going to run out of a lot of this stuff uh, at, at the current run rate because we're not finding it um, on land-based solutions, right? So the contentious bit being what you're talking about is in a deep ocean. People are a bit unsure, a bit nervous about what the potential damage um, is there. And I don't blame them for being a bit unsure. I, if, if you come to understand how the mining industry operates, I mean, last year, it was the biggest creator of waste on the planet, right? 190 billion tons of waste was generated. And if you believe the International Energy Agency's forecasts, that number will have to increase significantly. They estimate between five and 600% per annum to meet the energy needs for the green transition. So, you know, if, if you imagine doing all of that in the ocean, you think, oh my God, that's a horrible idea. And it would be, 
and there's no way we would be associated with that. But this is a this is a very special resource because it doesn't involve the things that we've become accustomed to with land-based mining. You know, we literally have one identified 1.6 billion tons of these remarkable rocks. And our job is to pick them up with the greatest efficiency and, and the lightest planetary touch. Okay, well, there's that, 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 an interesting phrase. What, what, what do you mean by the lightest um, you know, planetary touch? What I mean by the lightest planetary touch is that what, what is the impact that we're going to make on this planet of ours, you know, across a full spectrum of LCA impacts. So we have to analyze it looking through the lens of, of biodiversity, of megafauna, of CO2 emissions, of sequestered carbon, of the water that will be required to convert these, our rocks into battery metals all at the same time, comparing that to the land-based alternatives. And of course, I'll get on to one of the most important issues that is often forgotten, particularly in the developed world, and that is the societal impacts of land-based mining. And, you know, that is something that we've seen a lot about when it comes to child labor, but it goes much further than child labor. It goes into slave labor. It goes into indigenous communities being driven out of their their habitats, all because we have this desperate need for these metals, so we can buy a nice new electric car. And but, 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 but what again? Just I want to stay on this because it's it's a big claim, right? It's a big claim. The lightest. This is just best of class, best of breed. So, you know, how, how do you, how can you feel comfortable using that phrase? How do you know that you could? you know, take that claim, you know, take that mantle because, um, you know, money's been going on for years where we, you know, we, some people are very good at it, some people not, not so much and uh, some big producers, some small producers, there's a lot of data out there which you need to say, well, we can stand up against any of those. Well, the good news is there is a lot of data and, and by the way, I acknowledge that land-based mining has become much better and, you know, if you were to read the annual reports of some of the big mining companies, they sound like NGOs. <laughs> you know, they're doing so much to give back and to rehabilitate and so on. But of course, we know that that it, it a lot of the challenges come with what the nature of the ore body on land is and where it's located. And, you know, the fact that a lot of land-based ore bodies have deleterious elements like arsenic and mercury and antimony means that they have to generate enormous waste and tailings and those tailings need to be kept forever and even the biggest companies struggle with some of those challenges and then of course um, to assess our impacts we have to spend a lot of time and energy you know on assessing those impacts and with the help of independent scientists. And last year, we spent around $50 million alone just on our environmental um, research to understand the baseline impacts of the environment in which we'll be operating. And so then you have to come up with a set of conclusions and say, well, um, now it's the time for the trade-offs. You know, we, we, we're going to be pushing into a new frontier um, you know, we're located 4,000 meters below sea level, uh, which is where our nodules are, and a bit more than that, actually, 4,300 meters. It's 
the most common area on our planet. It's known as the abyssal zone. And it doesn't mean there's no life there. There's certainly no flora, but there is um, some fauna. Um, and what we have to do is to say, well, how can we mitigate any impacts we will make? But at the end of the day, there will be some, and then we have to make a decision. Then it's about trade-offs because what we can't afford to do is to put our head in the sand and say, well, if there's any impact, we shouldn't be doing it because then we'll have nothing. Then there'll be no metals. And of course, if it ain't grown, it's mined, you know, and that's generally how things, um, you know, how we should be thinking about this. Do you mean to mean we, so we society, not we the company? Because clearly people don't care whether you the company don't make any money. What they do care about is what it's doing to our planet, right? And yeah. if, if there is, because um, it's, it's hard to remediate, isn't it? So you've got to understand what's the damage in the first place. Is it de minimis? You know, i.e., it is genuinely a really, truly light touch, lightest touch. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. There's, uh, a, there's a potential trade-off. There's a potential trade-off. Oh. The decision needs to be made by society. So, you know, you must be entering those sorts of conversations. If you're talking to to, to senators and the like in the, in the, in the U.S. and um, all around the world, you're talking to you know politicians and and NGOs and you know, campaigners, what are their concerns? And, you know, what are the questions they're asking you? And what, what, are you what are you saying to them? Well, I think the, the, the biggest challenge we have is the disinformation that is in the marketplace. Because, you know, what we always say is we have to trust in the science. You know, let us carry out the science to provide the answers to the questions. Because, you know, many people just have a vehement opposition to progress. Many people think that we can recycle or degrowth our way to a better world. And, you know, the problem with whether I I could talk all day about the problems with that argument, but of course, the most obvious problem is that the people that it disadvantages most are the disadvantaged, the people that have the least the 3 billion people on our planet that can't afford a bicycle. And so the disinformation is is probably the biggest challenge. And what we say to them is we've just got to let the science do the talking and work off a, a factual set of facts and then make some decisions. And I think the decisions point very much in our favour. And, of course, our research is now being um, published in peer-reviewed journals and you know, very, very um, well-known peer-reviewed journals, which means that they've kind of passed the test of review. And, you know, what we've been able to, to, to show people is that we can collect these, turn them into battery cathode materials, and reduce CO2 emissions by more than 90% compared to land-based alternatives, that we can reduce tailings to zero, that we can reduce waste zero that we can only use a fraction of the amount of water and so i think for us it's just about building on that evidence and building and building and more research more investment and then it comes to doing it and then of course the doing is going to be the fun because you know that's how exciting you know we'll be collecting these rocks from more than 4,000 meters below sea level, turning them into battery metals. We'll be giving society eyes and ears into what we're doing through some of the technology, like our, our digital twin system, which 
uh, we use to help be more effective, but we'll also make available to our regulator and, and in part to civil society. Because, you know, sometimes people say, well, how will we know what you're doing a thousand miles offshore and 4,000 meters below sea level? You know, we won't have a, any idea. And it's like, no, it's the opposite. We're going to be giving you eyes and ears to what we're doing. We want everyone to be proud and know where these battery metals come from because we can measure all of our range of impacts. We can measure all of those things I talked about before. And I think what will happen is that consumers will prefer to buy products made with our battery metals compared to the land-based alternatives because of those range of impacts. Have you had any conversations with OEMs or car manufacturers? Um, uh, because they're looking for guarantees. They're looking for traceability um, and you know, culpability uh, for where the commodities using their cars come from. It's being demanded by their buyers, their, their users, and their investors, these big funds, now ESG-type funds. So uh, have those conversations started? Do they understand what you're trying to do? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we are talking to many of those companies and, um, and because they understand better than anyone what happens if you can't get the raw materials to build the batteries. And of course, the, they just had a firsthand experience with, with chips, right, where they had to close down their factories because they couldn't get hold of these little semiconductor chips. Now, battery metals could be even worse because they're talking about retooling, they're talking about, you know, making big promises to their customers, they're trying to be competitive with people that are leading in the space. And so they're making big commitments to go down this path. But historically, they've been able to push supply challenges off to the supply chain. It's like, ah. We're the car maker, you know, the supply chain will sort that out. But battery metals are different. And so they're now starting to awaken to the facts that, you know, actually this could be the right alternative to land-based alternatives. And so because the thing about a lot of land-based oil bodies when I talk to car companies is that there are a lot of unknowns that are still coming at them from one way or another, whether you look at Indonesia or the Philippines or from the Congo, you know, they all have unintended consequences. And sometimes those aren't apparent. And sometimes they come and bite you on the backside. And of course, you know, if you look at some of the, you know, news that is now coming out of where nickel is coming from, you've got uh, chromium six plus poisoning really starting to become a topical uh, issue. You've got indigenous tribes that have, um, you know, barely seen white man being pushed back further and further uh, because we need to get these metals. And so that's a very awkward moment if you're a car maker. And so, you know, yeah, so, so yeah, we're talking to them and, and I'm happy to say the conversations are are going well, you know, this they're enjoying the fact that we're spending so much money to get answers. Yeah. Because okay. I, th I think I think it's interesting because I think it's one, once you can persuade industry that what you're doing is responsible, it, it's green, it's clean, it's you know low possible low, lowest waste possible, it's it's zero carbon. all the things that they that they want to see. Um, I think it 
is the biggest signals, it will signal a sea change, pardon the pun, um, in, in, in thinking in, in the industry. Um, okay. I, okay. Well, let us know. I'd love to know more as those conversations uh, evolved and um, see some of these battery models, you know, see how these battery models take preference or maybe even command a premium to conventional uh, commodities pr produced. And we'll see some cars um, measured in sea horsepower, I suspect. You can patent <laughs> that, that's yours. Um, the, uh, <laughs> right, so, so what we're saying is macro, the, the supply demand numbers tell us that there's, there's a big demand coming and whatever, you know, and growing populations will, will drive that. Changes to, um, you know, huge infrastructure investment plans. China, so Asia, Europe, and the NES are going to drive that, but so is the automotive um, sector as well. So we, we, we get that. You've explained that the science needs to do the talking. You spent a lot of money so far on, on the science and letting that do the talking for you. Can we talk about the actual technology that you're hoping to get? Have you settled on, settled on something? It, remember, we're picking up, I'm assuming these nodules aren't, you're not breaking these up. These are sitting as independent nodules on the seabed. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so you need a technology to get it from 4,300 meters on the seabed up to the surface and then back to shore. What's the solution? Well, the solution is um, is a, a, a harvester that will operate on the seafloor using tracks. And, um, and it's worthwhile mentioning that almost 50 years ago, they started to collect these nodules um, from the seafloor. And uh, of course, a lot's happened since then. Um, we've had the advantage of um, technology in the oil and gas industry. And oh, you're going to show us a picture, aren't you? Oh, here I'm we go. I'm actually going to show you a Look little video, this. if you allow me. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is a, I want to show you this for two reasons. One is just to give you a sense of what the technology is, is like. And this was actually... Um, one of our fellow license holders who were operating in the um, on their license area, and it just shows how you lift these nodules with such a light impact. But the main thing I want to show you is a picture of after the event. Can we can we go full screen on this? Just so we, there we yeah. go. Lovely. Yeah. So using an engineering principle known as the Kawanda effect, it means that we can lift the nodules. You can see them lying there like golf balls on a driving range, that we can lift the nodules. So we're not going down there to churn up the seafloor. And instead, we're able to lift them with minimal impact. And, and um, this company then stopped their machine and took a picture of the area that they just passed over. And, you know, it's literally, that's the impact. It's like a pair of uh, car track tires. Um, and if you were to go and drive down the Atacama Desert, you would make a set of imprints. And if you went back there 10 years later, you'd probably still see your car track tires. And, you know, it's quite possible that'll be the same here, but you can see the level of impact is very, very small. And of course, I mentioned before that a lot of the, um, you know, we're spending a lot of money. Last year, we spent 188 days at sea on our license area, purely focused on environmental studies. And those studies are, are going to culminate in our environmental impact um, statement that will be lodged with our application in uh, around the middle of next year. And we're collaborating with many uh, of the leading 
universities and Natural History Museum, the National Oceanography Center, uh, to gather the data, the baseline data, all the way through the water columns from seafloor all the way up to the, the sea surface. But what we've been able to find, Matthew, is that across a broad range of impacts that we can really lower the set of impacts compared to land-based alternatives. And you can see on this chart um, where we compare, you know, for example, emissions with outer nodules compared to sulfides, laterites, and laterites, including, um, you know, the full LCA with, with sequestered carbon. And so, you know, what we find is that we can produce a ton of nickel for around three tons of CO2. Now, in some of those other markets, you're talking about up to 100 and more tons of CO2 for every ton of nickel. Plus, uh, we generate virtually no waste. We only use a fraction of the amount of water. And if you look at that through a, a much broader lens, what we call a, a, a full LCA, which was a, a, a study that we funded um, a couple of years ago. And, and since that, many other papers have been published as a result. But looking at a full range of impacts is important. And as you can see, we massively compress those impacts across all of the, the, the spectrum, apart from we do use more seafloor, of course. Um, but whether you're talking about CO2 emissions, uh, about the amount of flora and fauna that will be impacted, about um, biomass of any measurement, it, it comes out in our favor. But there are some, you know, if you don't mind, I'll just say that, you know, there is a well-organized opposition to anything new, you know, and, and, you know, that opposition use a pretty well uh, documented playbook. They've used it against other industries like uh, nuclear and so on, where, where you know, disinformation uh, is a very important part Um talking about we should have a moratorium until we know more, which of course is nonsense because all of the funding is coming from companies like us. So a moratorium means we go and do something else. And so, you know, we've been pretty um, used to, you know, that sort of inbound. And, and we just keep going back to let the science do the talking. And, and we've already had a strong cadence of publications out around, you know, various parts of our ocean research program. Um, on the left here, you'll see a list of some of the, the, the papers and, you know, studies that are being prepared now as a result of all of the research we're doing. Uh, on the left are some of the papers that we have published um, or that we have funded, at least, and that have appeared in peer-reviewed journals. So the cadence is really high. And I, I, the plume is one example, which, if, if I may, I'll just highlight because, you know, there's a... a rumors spread that I oh, will kick up this plume, which is the, the sediment dust, if you like. Think of it as if you drive your car down a dirt road. How far will the dirt, the dust travel? You know, and, and some people argue it will travel for, you know, thousands of kilometers, you know, and will never settle. But but the science is proving the opposite of that. And one of the other contractors who were active in the CCZ last year, GSR, um, released some of their data, which is consistent with ours, which showed when they were running their physical trials, the plume only raised five meters above the seafloor and pretty well fully settled around the test area 
you know, within 24 hours. Uh, and we kind of knew that, right? And so that's one of those things that you've just got to, you know, let the science provide the answers that sometimes the opposition group will build their argument on. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of how we think about it from an environment perspective. I, I guess it, there is one little slide that I always like to just remind people, um, you know, if you were to think about two ends of a scale, you know, where we're getting our nodules from, uh, which are in this abyssal zone um, where there's no plants, there are some organisms living there, of course, but if we measure them as at the introductory measurement level of biomass, there's around 10 grams of them per square meter, but there's no deforestation, there's certainly no child labor, there's no communities to move, and we won't destruct carbon sinks that are, that are stored there. Uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, it's where all the growth in nickel production is forecast to come from. It's some of the most biodiverse habitats on our planet, uh, where the biomass is, you know, 30 kilograms per square meter. So, you know, when you think about impacts, it helps to think, well, where do you start? You know, and of, of course, if we could go to the Atacama Desert and pick up rocks, and turn them into battery metals with no waste and no tailings, you know, that would surely be a better outcome than going to our Amazon or our Sulwazy to do the same. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, an, it's in interesting that there's such an organized opposition to what you're doing. I mean, that was a heck of a list of um, vested groups, not, not just NGOs, it's broader than that and, and probably well-funded too. And in this in this day and age with, with you know, um, social media being what it is and um, the extent there's reach, et cetera. What, what, what's, what's your path through this? Because you talked about, right, we're going, we're talking to governments that we've got all these, um, you know, um, li you know, minerals lists services that, that, that governments are trying to secure. Um, you've got prices going up. You've got an, uh, this, People are uncertain as to where the next big finds are coming from. They're, they're thinking, well, where does the next big copper mine come from? Where is it? Same for nickel. There's been no big discoveries in, in you know in three decades. So what what's the path forward for you? Do you, you can't sort of sit quietly and meekly and hide behind the science and go, do you know what? The science will do the talk, it'll be fine. There's there's a kind of um, you know, government bodies that you need to uh, engage with. There's society, you know, who are going to be you know, unsure about what you're doing. You're, you're telling your story, and then you've got a group of well-funded fun, well um, um, people who just don't want you to do what you're doing. Yeah, it, it, it's a tough road, right? And you've been at this a long time. You spent a lot of money to get to this point. So, yeah. what next? What do you need to do? Well, we never thought it would be easy. Um, firstly, and you know why do something easy let's do the challenging things and and so what we've got to do is just systematically continue to do the science continue to get through our feasibility which we're doing and then continue to inform people because there are several trends going on at the moment right which are quite helpful to us um, one of them is the electrification so we're moving away from you know fossil fuels to battery powered um, the other, of course, is that 
there's a decoupling initiative. So the world has woken up to the fact that China dominates the battery material supply chain. And while relations are not you know, perfect there, everyone wants to be able to build their own supply chain because if they turn that off to service their own market, then that's going to leave the West high and dry. And then of course, the other trend is that there's a real um, massive ESG focused impact investing. You know, investors want to know that they're more and more that they're putting their money to work to help the planet be better. And so we can play into that enormously. And so, and then I, I, I'll just show you one other slide, which is, of course, because um, we all know that cars, electric cars, use a lot more metal and, you know, renewable energy requires a lot more metal. But if you add up all of the uh, battery gigafactories that have been announced, uh, then we'll have to produce 1.2 gigawatt of annual battery production. Now, how on earth are we going to do that? Because in the USA, you know, in this, this little table here just shows, you know, the reserves that the USA has as an example. They have a little bit of lithium, but they virtually have no nickel and they virtually have no cobalt and manganese. There's a little bit of copper there as well. And of course, the other thing that's become apparent is that, you know, no one wants a mine in their backyard. We just saw Twin Metals have their mine knocked back last week. Uh, we've seen the same with Resolution and with Pebble. And I think it's probably the right thing that they're not going ahead because of their, their environmental impacts. But the question is, where are these metals going to come from? You know, and, and this ocean resource is probably the only known resource of size and and low impact that could solve this equation. And, and what people have also started to realize, as I mentioned, is that this supply chain, you know, if it ends up in America, generally it's come via China. And what we can do is turn that 50,000 mile supply line into a 1,500 mile supply line, because as we collect our, our nodules, we can ship them straight to a port in the USA or we can strip them, ship them to uh, Norway where there's abundant renewable power or, or all the way down to Australia or to India. And so the choices are much more plentiful to us. And so, you know, these are some of the mega trends that are helping balance out, you know, the, uh, the, the people that think there should be no progress, that we should, you know, just hope like hell that recycling and degrowth you know, might be viable alternatives when clearly they're not. And, and for those people that, you know, just want to oppose, it's like that you have to make that assumption that they're almost comfortable with those land-based mining practices, you know, because they're going on today. You know, you, you can't take away those impacts that are happening every day on the land-based mining industry. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of those protesters have never actually been to a mine, let alone one in a developing country like Indonesia or, or the Philippines where, you know, or the Congo, where the devastation that is happening is just horrible. And, you know, so, so somewhere those, you know, arguments have to, you know, be put out to society. And I think, you know, we're fortunate that our regulator is um, is 
made up of 167 countries. It's the International Seabed Authority. And so, um, you know, of course, that's what some of these land-based ore bodies have struck, you know, that they have come up against local opposition where governments are being, you know, potentially thrown out of, of power if they approve things or if they don't reverse decisions. And in some cases, that's the right thing to do. But having a regulator that is represented by the, the sovereign nations of the world, you know, I think is a much safer bet. So, so this comes back to, so I like those two last charts. So when, when you sort of, it's sort of Elon Musk's uh, line of, you know, first principles, you, know, you want the, you want the mono- molecules to travel the shortest possible distance as well. As well. And you, you're describing that there. Wow. But he, he comes back to this lightest touch phrase of yours. It's like saying, it's happening at the moment. It's sure it's not ideal, um, and, so, and some 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 of the um, the mining practices need to improve. But we've gone beyond that to try and solve the demand problem, and we think we've come up with a, a way of doing it better than anyone else is doing it at the moment. Is that is that is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Un, un, understood. So um, th- that's that's a, that's a really big deal. So what are the barriers to you? Because you're going to need, you're going through um, um, these studies, feasibility yes. studies, uh, you're, at the end of which you're going to need permits and you're also going to need permission. And, um, and you're going to need permission from um, the, the you know, invest, in, you know, people, investors, I, they're either going to invest in you or they're not. You're going to need to say to investors, look, we've got the permits in place. It's the right thing to do. Will you invest in our, in our company, right? It's a kind of um, it, it, it's that that final that final tick is can you raise the money? So what are the what are the barriers between now and then for you? Do you think? Well, the a deliberate strategy we deployed was to attract partners who wanted to come with us on this journey. And so today we count Glencore as one of our shareholders. They also have an offtake for some of the nickel and copper. Um, we count Maersk as one of our, our vendors who've been helping us manage our offshore campaigns. And very importantly, we have a partner in Allseas. Now, Allseas were one of the world's, or are one of the world's largest pipe layers in the deep ocean. And so, you know, they want to be able to um, move aside, move their industry away from laying pipes for the oil and gas industry into a new industry. And I I have a chart here that I'm looking forward to share with you that shows you a little boat that they acquired for us uh, back in February, 2020. Um, This was a a former drill ship for the oil and gas industry uh, that was worth $700 million back in 2010, which they acquired with some help from us for um, a lot less than $50 million. And it is perfect to help us get started. And so uh, it's actually getting ready to set sail for its sea trials with the harvester on board. This picture was taken some months ago. Um, We'll release pictures of it soon. But, you know, it's now operating. It has a a riser. It has a harvester. It has, it's a boat ready for production. And that boat will end up on our license area in the CCZ um, later this year, 
So that's a very exciting development from our perspective because um, we'll be able to you know, monitor its impacts. We'll be able to test some engineering work that they've been doing. And also importantly, we'll be able to finalize our environmental impact report that will be part of our submission. And so, you know, what we have to do is all of those uh, steps as you move through the feasibility. We've already completed our onshore pyrometallurgical uh, pilot plant work that was completed uh, earlier. And, and, you know, what we've been able to show is that we can turn these nodules into uh, a, a very attractive manganese silicate product and a mat containing all of the nickel, the copper and the cobalt. And this mat is proving very attractive to people that make battery cells uh, because it can allow them to, to bypass some steps that they would otherwise have to, to take. And of course, the, the benefit of that is that you get to reduce cost. And as you know, no one better than Tesla has demonstrated, if, if to build scale, we're going to drive these costs down to make them affordable for people. And so, you know, that's what we're busy doing, Matthew. We're busy showing, um, proving our, our pilot mining system. We've already completed the onshore uh, pilot work. We'll be completing the environmental reports. And all of this comes together for our application that will go to the regulator in the middle of next year. And then we expect to have that back as an approval in 2024. And, and as you can see, that boat is, is going to be production ready, you know, and, and there's the opportunity of getting other companies who have these assets in servicing the oil and gas industry who want to be part of a new industry. And so, you know, we're talking to many other strategics um, who also would like to do something like Allseas did, who would like to help us collect nodules. And so, you know, from that perspective, we'll be collaborating with many, many companies. Okay. And so just staring at this picture, so you've got one of these collector robots, which will go up and down, presumably in straight lines, like a lawnmower, picking up these nodules. Is that just because it's the, it's the first phase or one ship has only one robot or do you scale that up at some point? Because I don't know how, yeah. how much, I get, I get the, the sort of high, high density of, of, of commodity in, in the nodules, but um, yeah. it, it's got to affect the economics if you've just got one of these things going up and down. What, what's, what's the future yeah, look like? Yeah. Well, even with one of them, it can be, um, the economics are, are very attractive. But that production vessel uh, that you're looking at there, will eventually be able to handle 3 million tons once we put another harvester on board. But for the first year, it'll just manage one harvester. Okay. And so, um, you know, we figure, you know, from a de-risking perspective, let's just start in a more conservative manner. But of course, those learnings come very fast. Yeah. And, you know, another really interesting point to note between our project and a land-based project is that, you know, putting scale on a land-based project is challenging because you have to build roads and power and ports and railway lines and places for people to live. And that can take billions of dollars and take a lot of years. And then you reach a bottleneck and you have to lay down more infrastructure. Whereas from our perspective, we have to float more ships out there. 
And, you know, we can be building those ships at the same time or converting those ships at the same time. And then, of course, you know, one ship can be sailing to because the ship stays there, right? They just offload their cargo to a transport uh, vessel. And so, so the ship is always moving at a very slow pace as the harvester is collecting rocks on the seafloor. But the cargo vessel can head, you know, one can head north, one can head south, and, uh, and one can head east. And so it, it off, offers us a lot more flexibility on, uh, as we want to bring scale to how, this industry. How does the, appreciate, appreciate that, because I think scale is obviously what people always look for, because that's growth, that's the, why people mm. invest, is, is how does it go from the seabed, from, from the collector up to the collection vessel? Through an air riser. Right. So basically, uh, same that they same principle that they used 50 years ago, actually. So it's like a, a big pipe. They inject compressed air in partway down. The air expands, rises, and creates a vacuum. And so, okay. yeah. So it's 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 rises are used, you know, extensively across the oil and gas industry today. Right. And when's the feasibility study looking like completing? Because I guess people will want a sort of sense of the economics because there's a lot of moving parts. You know, you're, sure. you're, you're going from not not just the the um, collection, but also the processing. So it's quite a big vision mm. and you're, yep. you're trying to capture all of the value along that chain. So can you mm. give us a sense of the timing? Well, we, we've already released, of course, a very detailed preliminary economic assessment. And so, and there's not a lot of magic to processing these. What our pilot work showed is that they behave very analogously to nickel laterite material when they're in a kiln. And so, you know, that's helpful to us because of course there is some infrastructure out there that we could use without needing to rebuild it. So that's that's good. Um, but we'll continually be releasing, you know, more information as we lodge our application. Uh, we, we have a, a very good insight into um, what the economics look like right now. And, um, you know, we, we released some of that last year in our, our marketing documents. But in my last quarterly updates, you know, I said, I was asked the question, what can we look forward to this year? You know, we've got really clear priorities um, and and they involve continuing keeping the project on time so that we can submit our application, uh, you know, early Q3 next year. So that's going well. Um, the other is, you know, to show the market how we can develop this project without needing to use all of our own capital. And so that means that over time, we want to see, you know, people operate those ships on a per ton basis in return for a long-term contract. But, you know, I expect this year we'll be able to share some very good news around how we can share that burden with operators. And the same for onshore processing. You know, I'm confident, as I've said earlier, that we will be able to entice partners in to build that processing um, power using their capital, not ours. And that means that, you know, that will have tremendously positive impacts from an IRR perspective and demonstrate to the market that this isn't going to be straddled with some of the CapEx uh, hurdles that some other projects tend to have. But, but because the, the, 
The difficulty of this thing, it's a very expensive project to move things forward. Doing anything offshore is expensive, right? And you, um, we, we did the involving the SPAC last year, came off a bit. You've raised um, some money, you know, proceeds of just under 140 million um, bucks. You've got commitments to all season. People like that to just keep this thing going. So you, there's, in a sense, timing is really important for you because sure. you can otherwise you just have to keep raising capital you know dilute shareholders continually and i think that's that's not as and i get where you're out of the project right i i understand where you're out of the project but these these the feasibility will be a moment for you where people can go okay you firmed up on the pea numbers and you firmed up on the economics we yeah. know who the potential strategic partners could be in terms of being ability to use their balance sheet to move this project forward um, get closer to this, the point where you can get permits in place and actually can start, um, mm. well, moving towards a, a, a monetary event, whatever that, whatever shape or form that takes. So time is critical for you. Are, are, you, okay. are you conscious of that? Or are you concerned about that? Or do you think, do you know what? We've got enough partners here supporting what we do that we're, we're confident in our ability to move this thing forward. Well, I'm a naturally paranoid sort of person, so I'm always conscious of it. Um, I think the other thing for investors is that I'm also a significant shareholder. So I understand the impact of dilution. And so, you know, I am very, very, you know, cautious with the money that we have. But I also know that we need to keep time to the plan because, you know, slippages in time are very expensive for companies at our phase of development. And, and, the other thing, when you mention about how capital intensive it is to do things in the ocean, you know, if we go back to the example I gave of that drill ship, $700 million, thank you, oil and gas industry, which we will have operating for, you know, by the time all the modifications are done, you know, a fraction of that number. And so, you know, there are benefits that we're gaining by, you know, the oil and gas industry, you know, shrinking. And so we think we can actually be very, very capital efficient. And of course, the, that mega trend I talked about before about decoupling from the East and West means that there is capital available to us. There are government incentives available to us that entice us to locate our processing in one jurisdiction rather than another. And, you know, you can expect us to be fully exploiting those opportunities as we go along. So... You know, I've always told our shareholders that we have a capital light approach, you know, that we own the resource and the licenses and, and our job is to get that permitted. We also want to have direct relationships with consumer facing brands, the eventual customers, but the parts in the middle, you know, we will, you know, whether it's the collection, the shipping or the processing, we will have lots of partnerships. We will have lots of other companies capital Let's just look at the offshore oil and gas industry. They're used to operating these very expensive large boats in return for long-term contracts. And that's where we want to head. Our plan is to never, ever own a boat. You know, that is stated plan. And so, and I'm, I can't see anything that will ever change that because there are better people at doing that than us. Our magic is to identify the resource, get it through the permitting process, and then to build a brand around low impact ocean metals, you know, such that, but the bits in the middle, there are better people with better balance sheets 
and you know that that want to be in this industry as well that want to be in the battery materials supply chain jared appreciate the update today nice to be reminded of the story and how you're moving it forward um i'd love it if you can come on and maybe dig into the weeds a little bit on on each of the different aspects of, 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 of the company. We sort of touched on them today, but maybe we get great for people to understand better the, the detail and the planning and probably some, maybe some of the people involved in, in, in each of those, not, not least of all how the um, strategic partners are working with you. So appreciate your time today. See you soon. Maybe I'll bring a, uh, one or two of my colleagues next time as well. Your, your viewers will be getting sick of me, Matthew. Okay, take care.